We're all about the dramatic pause. <laughs> but we are actually finishing up tonight. We are finishing a series we've been in, and it's been called Stranger Things, because as you can probably tell from that very graphic, it's been pulling from the series Stranger Things. And, and this isn't the gospel according to Stranger Things. It's not one of those practices of trying to find spiritual imagery and secular art. It's not that. But we are asking, what about this show and the way it addresses the supernatural and another reality that defines how we act in this reality? What about that resonated with so many people? Again, you can look at theaters as well, and our movie theaters are packed monthly with horror movies that deal with supernatural and, and other realities. Why do they keep bringing in the money again and again where they keep making them again and again? And is the idea of this reality, this alternate reality that defines ours, does it resonate so deeply because we all know there is one? You know, the Stranger Things, it, 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 the series resonated so loudly with our culture. They've already booked uh, season two. I think they're already filming it. And the tagline for that season is, in the fall of 1984, the adventure continues. How many of you guys can remember what you were doing in 1984? Keep my hand down. But uh, all this 1980s from this series, it, it's nostalgic for people. They feel nostalgia. They remember, oh, I know what I was doing. I had that poster in my bedroom. I listened to that song. I was seeing that movie, all these Star Wars references. It's like, oh, yeah, I was there. It sparked many a water cooler conversation, not just about the series, but about the entire decade of the 1980s. And, again, my memory is a little fuzzy because I myself was born in 1984. But what's interesting is the creators of the show were also born in 1984. Yes, thank you, Jamal. Wow. But clearly, they've done their research. And if you were to study 1984, 1984 was the, the introduction. Apple Macintosh introduced, it debuted at a $2,500 machine, right? There were approximately 1,000 hosts on the Internet, 1,000. And the marketing of cell phones had just begun, but, of course, they were like the size of a brick, and they were awkward. And most people were thinking, well, this is just going to be a toy for the rich, but now you're 12 and 13 year old thinks they're entitled to one, right? Cell phones were just being introduced in 1984 and the highest grossing movie in 1984, anybody wanna take a stab at it? No, sorry, that was the answer like three weeks ago, but good try. I don't think, turn it, no. I don't think anybody's gonna get it, it was Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, little Axel Foley. But, I'm looking for an answer on this one. What do you think the second grossing was? They just made a remake of this 1984 movie, who said it? Who shouted it? All right, cool. <laughs> All right, you get a copy of, of E.T. Sorry, it's not Ghostbuster, but you can take a trip down uh, Nostalgia Lane and just remember, I honestly don't remember what year that came out. That was the highest grossing movie of the 80s, though. Basically, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas owned the 1980s. But in 1984, film critics were saying that George Lucas was going to go another direction from Star Wars because interest was waning. But then I was born in 1984. In my childhood, I watched those movies about once a week. And uh, you can thank me because I restored the balance in the interest of the force. So now here we are. But uh, yet, I'll, I won't keep going down that rabbit trail. But <laughs> we can start talking about Star Wars and me and Wayne would be on one page, but then we'd, we'd just go elsewhere. But I don't think I'm alone on this. Like as a kid, I loved adventure, 
Mystic lands, heroic characters, the kind that bring action figures to life, the kind that turn sticks into lightsabers, mattresses into the Millennium Falcon. I, I loved those stories as a kid. I, I still do now. But as a kid, it's even better when the heroes themselves are kids, children. Think of the Chronicles of Narnia. Even think of Lord of the Rings. Those hobbits, they weren't kids, but they were very childlike. You know, they... They see from a different perspective. They dare to see things differently. In the series Stranger Things, it revolves around three kids and their young friend they make named Eleven. And this series got shot down over 15 times by different networks that said, you can't have a show with kids in lead roles that is intended for adults. It just won't work. Shot down over a dozen times, over 15 times. And the assumption is that adults are too mature. They've matured, and it's almost like this perspective that Paul drops in his letter to Corinth, where he says, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things, like fiction, fantasy, and fun. Or is that not what Paul was talking about? Because we can take this verse, as well as the context of our culture, and see maturity as this progressive dismissal of childlike qualities so that we can embrace the responsibilities of the adult life. And part of that is, is healthy. We don't need any more grown boys loafing on the couch because they don't have an active faith, right? We, we need people to take up some responsibilities in life, but even as adults, we embrace nostalgia. We reflect on the quote-unquote good old days. And usually the good old days is when we were so young that we couldn't drive, right? Those were the good old days. We couldn't vote. We couldn't go out of the house with our parents' permission. What about those days makes them the good old days? And maybe it's because there's something about our youth that we've lost, something about our youth that we missed, and there's things we've gained as we've matured that we'd rather do without. You know, maybe we don't have to sacrifice our inner child at the altar of maturity, but I want to look, if you've got your Bible, I want to start in Luke chapter 8, verse 40. We're going to work our way to verse 50, and it's the story of Jairus, who had just lost his child. Specifically, he was about to lose his daughter. But we'll start in Luke chapter 8, in verse 40. And it says, on the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. As Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. A, a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe, and immediately the bleeding stopped. So, You've got Jairus who comes to Jesus, and he's no doubt anxious because he knows his 12-year-old daughter is on her last breath. And Jesus is laboring to get there through this crowd. I'm sure he wants to grab Jesus by the beard and pull him and say, hey, we got to get to my daughter. And this woman touches him, and he pauses, and he stops, and he deals with her and her heart in that instance. He deals with her need, and it seems compassionate, but as any doctor will tell you, or Steph, as she just watched every episode of Grey's Anatomy all over again, can tell you that this is malpractice. When a doctor triages patients, they address the acute ones first, the ones that are going to die if they don't get immediate attention. Those with chronic issues, like the woman bleeding for 12 years, they could wait a bit longer. It makes sense, but Jesus, as usual, 
seems to do something that doesn't make sense. It seems strange. It seems backwards. And even after it seems like Jesus has screwed up this situation royally, he, he says, essentially, don't fear, just believe. In Scripture, he says, or it says that while he was still speaking to her, the woman who had had the issue of blood, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and he told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But when Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith, and she will be healed. Another translation, again, it says, don't fear, just believe. It's one of the most challenging verses in Scripture to me. One I probably screw up the most often. Don't fear, don't be anxious, don't worry, don't stress, just believe. How often do I, in my lack of belief, stress, worry, get anxious, and again, lack belief. But when everything seems screwed up and the only hope for a solution is for God to move supernaturally, Jesus would say to us, hey, just believe. But you know, the older I get, the more I have to fight not becoming a cynic. And I was sharing with somebody recently how so much of this is probably just even rooted, half of it probably, the fact I'm a Wizards and a Skins fan, DC sports fan. Every year they find a new way to fail you. So every time there's hope or there's optimism, I'm just a cynic. And it's translated to other areas in my life. <laughs> but in other ways, too, we're living in an age of cynicism where it's better to be wry and distrustful than opening, open and trusting. You know, Paul told the church, to test everything. So this isn't a call to be naive, but when God wants to move supernaturally in us, when he wants to move supernaturally through us, supernaturally around us, he would tell us, hey, don't fear, just believe. But it sounds so cold in the moment, right? Like Steph is a deathly afraid of spiders. She hates spiders. Carlos knows this. Anybody that's been to the DR knows this. Steph hates spiders. And if she sees a giant spider in the house, it's not gonna help if I just say, hey, don't be scared. Just don't fear. She's like, excuse me? Come over here and kill this thing, right? <laughs> that will put stress on our relationship. But imagine instead you just lost your child. That kind of increases the ante a little bit. There's a little more weight when Jesus says, hey, don't fear. Just believe. How can he be so blunt and to the point? Is it because he doesn't care about Jairus' daughter? Because children at that time, they didn't have much worth in society? Is, is that why? Well, we know it's not the case. Because in the same book of Luke, in chapter 18, Jesus says this. He says, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I'll tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never receive it. This sounds like an invitation to be childlike. Matter of fact, you could take it as a command because he says, if, if you don't receive the kingdom of God like a child, you'll never receive it. You'll never enter into it. But an invitation to be childlike, it's not an invitation to a spiritual neverland where we never grow up and we em embrace not growing up because, again, many believers unfortunately live there. This is an invitation to spiritual maturity, not an invitation to spiritual immaturity. Matter of fact, those that don't take the steps to become mature. I was just reading in Hebrews this week where it says in Hebrews 5, verses 11 through 6, the author's speaking to these people. He says, there is so much more we would like to say about this, but it's difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. 
Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead to become mature in our understanding. So does this contradict Jesus when he says, be childlike? But childlike and childish, even in their etymology, are are different. Childish can mean silly and immature. Childlike can mean trusting and innocent. This call to be childlike, again, it's not a call to immaturity. Jesus is pointing out and making sure we recognize that there are some childlike qualities that we won't mature as a believer without. Again, a childlike faith is not a call to immaturity. It's a position we're called to in order to mature. A childlike faith is not a call to immaturity, but it's a position we're called to in order to mature. Again, Jesus says we won't graduate to heaven without it. And Jesus isn't contradicting Paul and Luke 18, and Paul isn't contradicting Jesus in Corinthians, and the author of Hebrews isn't contradicting Jesus in his letter. They're simply highlighting the fact that a childlike faith, it's it's not licensed to live immaturely. And it's tricky to even talk about this because the phrase itself, childlike faith or faith of a child, is not in the Bible where it's strictly defined. But if you were to look up the faith of an adult, or, or look at the status of the faith of an adult compared to the faith of a child in our culture. It's striking. I was a youth pastor for a long time, and, and uh, reading this book on apologetics and youth, I, I saw this fact, Ravi Zacharias, he said that 51% of college freshmen renounce their faith by the time they graduate. It's huge. 51% of people who call themselves believers as they go into college renounce their faith by the time they graduate. That made my job as a youth pastor a little more serious, don't you think? Come on, not just a a faith of the heart, but a faith of the head, uh, a faith that knows how to defend their faith, knows what they believe and why they believe it. You know, you start talking about all that, you think of of C.S. Lewis, who I quote often because he wrote apologetics and books that have helped fortify the faith of so many people over generations. He knew multiple languages, was an expert in classical literature and and a professor at Oxford. By most measures, he was one of the most fruitful, brilliant, and prolific Christian thinkers in in recent history. You know, like when you're in Sunday school and you don't know the answer, the answer is always what? Jesus. When you're a pastor, you like, who said this quote that everybody always quotes? It's probably C.S. Lewis. It's probably the answer. So by any and all measure, I think we'd all say that C.S. Lewis was a mature man of faith. Yet listen to this quote. He says, when I was 10, I read fairy tales in secret and would have been ashamed if, it had been found, if I had been found doing so. Now that I'm 50, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. He says later in that same writing that the modern view seems to me to involve a false conception of growth. They accuse us of arrested development because we have not lost a taste that we had in childhood. But surely arrested development consists not in refusing to lose old things, but in failing to add new things. Where I formerly had one pleasure, I now have two. And this rings true. But as we grow up and mature so often in life, we don't just add pleasures and pursuits. So often in life as we grow and mature and take on more responsibilities and get married and and get a home and build a family, so often we also take on fears. We take on fears. 
Where I formerly had one fear, I now have two. You know, when you're born, you only have two fears, psychologically. What do you think those are? As a baby, the two things you fear. Kathleen's like, you told me last week. I know what it is. What? Abandonment? Hunger? Raise your hands. Sorry. <laughs> Jamal. Kathleen knows what they say. Loud noises. Loud noises is one. The other is falling. As a baby, when you just come in the world, those are the two things that inherently you fear from the jump. Loud noises and falling. Those are the two fears. You know, every other fear you develop in life, you've learned those fears. You've developed those fears. And psychologists who study adults, there are over 2,000 classified fears. And if you want to kill 30 minutes and laugh a lot, just look up what those fears are. I'll just give you a couple. Arachibutterophobia is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. A clinical fear. Unattractophobia, the fear of ugly people. Ergophobia, the fear of work. Somebody said they have that. We'll have all to call later. Arithmophobia, the fear of numbers. And then sesquipedalophobia, which is the fear of long words, which is ironic because that very word is eight syllables long, right? But fears we learn, and then if we're going to get past them, we have to unlearn them in life. But unfortunately, unlearning can be twice as hard as learning. But it's imperative because our senseless worries, our misguided beliefs can place limits on God that ultimately they, they limit us. We end up in cages with God on this other side of the fence. And as we've been talking about in this series as, as 11 and so much comes out of that fence in Stranger Things, God would say, hey, there's supernatural things I want to do in your life, but you've got to let me out of the fence you put me in. He wants to do the supernatural and, and sometimes seemingly strange. And daily he invites us out of the ordinary and the mundane because he wants to use us to do extraordinary things for his kingdom. Every person in here, every single person, you've got a purpose and a destiny. But will his church step up to that invitation? I've got a clip I want to show real quick from guess what? Stranger Things. <laughs> we just tell our parents we have AV club after school. That'll give us at least a few hours for Operation Markwood. You seriously think that the weirdo knows where Will is? Just trust me on this, okay? Did you get the supplies? Yeah. Binoculars from Nam. Army knife, also from Nam. Hammer, camouflage bandana, and the wrist rocket. You're gonna take out the Demogorgon with a slingshot? First of all, it's a wrist rocket. And second of all, the Demogorgon's not real. It's made up. But if there is something out there, I'm gonna shoot it in the eye and blind it. Dustin, what did you get? All righty. So we've got Nutty Bars, Bazooka, Pez, Smarties, Pringles, Vanilla Wafers, Apple, Banana, and Trail Mix. Seriously? We need energy for our travels, for stamina. And besides, why do we even need weapons anyway? We have her. She shut one door. With her mind. Are you kidding me? That's insane. Imagine all the other cool stuff she could do. Like, I bet that she could make this fly. Hey. Okay, concentrate, okay? Okay, one more time. Okay. Use your powers, okay? Idiot. 
I share that one because it's hilarious. Two, because you talk about nostalgia. I'm going to my parents tomorrow morning, visit my nephews. Last time I was at my parents' house, my mom pulled all my old Star Wars toys out of the attic. And one of them was that Millennium Falcon that I played with as a kid. That's the nostalgia I'm talking about. It was so beat up, so broken that we ended up trashing it. There was no value, missing so many pieces. But I still got like hundreds of these guys. Come on, I could bring the pilots if I couldn't bring the Millennium Falcon. So that's the only reason they're up there. But again, Dustin says, after she had closed one door with her mind, right? That's insane. Imagine all the other cool stuff she can do. This quick childlike belief in the supernatural. It wasn't tackled by doubts. It wasn't tackled by fear. And in this story, the plot, if you don't know it, their friend seemed dead. It seemed like all hope was lost, but along comes this girl who only knows her name as Eleven, and, and her, her powers give them this glimmer of hope. And again, Jesus says, to his disciples and to the people around him that day, don't fear, just believe. Are there legitimate doubts that we should listen to in life and considerations we should have? Yes, but a healthy maturity knows when and how to be childlike. A healthy maturity knows when and how to be childlike. Eleven, they're standing around that black board because when she was explaining where their missing friend was, she found this handy Dungeons and Dragons board and flipped it upside down and said, he's here, he's hiding. And the boy's friends, they come to call this unseen reality as the upside down and with little explanation beyond that. They just push after and push forward in their search. They don't get it all spelled out, and that doesn't hinder them. You know, Jesus, he comes to us, and he flips our world upside down. You want to save your life? Lose it. (laughs) You want to be first? You know, the last will be first. He says things like, love your enemy. Bless the one that hates you. Want to be the greatest? Serve everybody. Blessed are the poor in spirit, not the rich. Blessed are those who mourn, not those who party. And the only way that any of this stuff he says could make any sense is if there's some reality that we don't see that defines the reality we do see. And our faith, this certainty of the things not seen, it brings these two worlds together. And Jesus implied that the faith necessary to enter the kingdom, it's found in childlike qualities. And you look at those C.S. Lewis quotes, again, we've, we've grown out of some childlike perspectives that are a necessity, and we've added fears that come with our growth. And I'm not talking fears of monsters from some other dimension. I'm not talking about stuff coming through our walls. I'm talking about those little fears that creep in almost like we don't notice, like the undertow at the beach, and as we try to walk forward, it holds us back and it hinders us. Fears that we've learned that we need to unlearn, and I'm just going to hit you with two tonight. Had a bunch last week, and then I realized I only got time for a couple. So I'm going to give you two. Maybe I'll put the rest up on the web notes. But the first, it's a fear of pleasure. Now, that might sound odd, but kids are bold about what they, they like and they don't like. They don't care uh, what's popular or not when they're at a young age. They just do whatever. They want to go to Walmart in their Spider-Man outfit and shop. They'll do just that, right? doesn't matter if that's acceptable or not. But adults, we've got my, what might be called guilty pleasures, right? Things that we do that we don't want other people to know about because it might be frowned upon. I've got a, a buddy who pastors. He's a grown man, and he likes to take a bath daily. Daily. And when he was in high school, he would wake up hours before other people in his family so he could have access to the bathtub to take a bath before anybody else would need to take a shower. And when he takes a bath, we're talking bath bombs, all the good salts, light some candles, all that, all that, all that stuff. He loves it. And that's his bread and butter, and he's a grown man, and he doesn't like to tell people about that all the time because it's a guilty pleasure, right? I know other grown men that every once in a while like to smoke a cigar or a pipe, but that's frowned upon, so that's their 
guilty pleasure. Or I know a, a pastor's wife, whom some of you might know very, 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 very well, who on Sundays likes to sleep into about noon. And then by the time kickoff starts at about 1, 1 15, she's like, nap time. <laughs> that might be her guilty pleasure, but why do we call them guilty pleasures? What if they aren't guilty? <laughs> what if it's just pleasure and we've got a flawed view of pleasure? What if God would say, hey, go ahead and take a nap. Hey, buddy, go take a bath. Ain't nothing wrong with taking a bath. What if God wants us to experience these things? You know, you may have heard of Charles Darwin. He's kind of a huge figure in science and, and scientific thought. And he's got this quote on his loss of pleasure to age and to science. He says, up to the age of 30 or beyond it, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. And even as a schoolboy, I took intense delight in Shakespeare. Formerly, pictures gave me considerable and music very great delight. But now for many years, I can't endure to read a line of poetry. I've tried to read Shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I've also almost lost any taste for pictures or music. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it doesn't cause me the exquisite delight which it formerly did. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part of our nature. Yeah, that's long and that's deep. <laughs> Albert Einstein once said, the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. Dare I say in this series, the strange. <laughs> it is the source of all true art and science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. These are some profound quotes on the loss of pleasure to age, to science. But can we also lose pleasure, not just to age or to science, but to religion. You know, there's been movements within religion that judge the world and the pleasures of the world as unspiritual and God as essentially anti-pleasure. And ultimately, he becomes a, a cosmic killjoy where you better listen to K-Love and only K-Love. And on week, weekends, right, you better not go see those movies. You better be at home reading commentaries. And if you go see those movies, they better be the same studios that made Fireproof and God's Not Dead. Otherwise, you better be fireproof because you better turn or burn, right? Those kind of people where it becomes a bubble and sometimes this bubble of boredom where you almost feel a tinge of guilt when you feel a desire for something that's not exclusively for God. And we forget that God wired us this way. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. Your pre in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God isn't the enemy of happiness, joy, and delight. He's the author of it. May we always connect, though, as it does in this verse, pleasure to his presence. May those pleasures we feel cause us to praise him and the God who directs us in it. You know, somewhere we so often see God as some kind of spoil sport is, is sexuality. But he created it. And those boundaries he gave us for it. Specifically, one monogamous sexual relationship for your whole life, it's scientifically proven that that is most pleasurable for your brain, the way your brain is wired. God created your brain. You know, his commands, they guide us towards pleasure, not away from it. So often the world's got it backwards, thinking, oh, he's, he's a spoiled sport. No, he knows how he created you, and he's guiding us towards pleasure. Don't believe me? Check out the book Sex, Men, and God by Douglas Weiss. It'll open your eyes. But again, the Garden of Eden literally translates the garden of pleasure. 
When God created everything and called it good, the world was rooted in pleasure. Pleasures that should stimulate praise and the worship of he who created them. But I love Philip Yancey, and he says um, in one of his books that God lavished good gifts on the world. And how we use those gifts determines whether or not they remain good and satisfying. He says a society that denies the supernatural usually ends up elevating the natural to supernatural status. A society that denies the supernatural usually ends up elevating the natural to supernatural status. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the, the sweet poison of the false infinite. When we elevate something natural in ways it was never meant to satisfy. It's what God says in the Old Testament is a broken cistern that can't hold water. You know, C.S. Lewis says of, of God, he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. That we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You know, again, we read in Psalm that God offers fullness of joy, infinite joy, as C.S. Lewis calls it here. And in his presence are pleasures forevermore. God doesn't say to us, I can't believe that you're seeking pleasure. He says, I can't believe that you seek it that weakly. I can't believe you're settling for less, that we would turn objects that should spark our worship into the objects of our worship. Again, rejecting the supernatural and elevating the natural to supernatural status. St. Augustine, he had this powerful imagery on his desires and misplaced worship. He said, I had my back to the light and my face turned toward the things upon which the light fell. You know, the pursuit of pleasure, it shouldn't take us away from God. God created a pleasurable creation, called it good, so we could, inspired by the experience, worship him. And natural desire, it's not an enemy of the supernatural, and repressing those longings isn't the solution. To find the path of joy, I need to connect the desire to its otherworldly source. Connect that pleasure to the otherworldly source, which is God. Again, Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. May we always seek to connect the pleasure to God's presence. The recipe for joy is to connect our pleasures and our desires in this life to their otherworldly source, God. Jesus came, died on the cross, so we could have access to its otherworldly source. May we always take advantage of that open door policy. But you know, the second fear that I want to drive home tonight before we close is, is the fear of looking foolish. The fear of looking foolish. When we get older, we develop this fear of looking foolish. What do you think the top two fears are in most polls? Top two fears. Public speaking. Dang, Mike, you do the survey yourself? All right, I don't have a prize for you. I'm not giving you one of these action figures. But... uh. Public speaking, and what's funny is you rank them, it's public speaking and then death. People would rather die than give public speaking. And why is that? Because of the fear of looking foolish. That I'm going to get in front of all these people and start talking and mumble and screw up, and I'm going to look foolish. Again, guilty pleasures. Why are they guilty? Well, we talked about the, the flawed view of pleasure, but also it's the fear of what people will think. If you celebrate Nickelback's entire catalog, you might keep that to yourself just because not everybody's so accepting that. You accept Barry Manilow's or celebrate his entire catalog, Michael Bolton's entire catalog, right? You might keep that to yourself because movies like Office Space make fun of it. 
But children, right, they're, they're carefree. Again, they don't care. They might wear knee-high socks, a Spider-Man mask in their drawers, and like, let's go shop for groceries. Like, let's go. I'm good. I'm ready to roll. Gordon McKenzie, he's a man that worked at Hallmark. He would do workshops with elementary kids, uh, just basically schools of creativity. And he would do surveys. Before he would start, he would ask, hey, who here is an artist? And in first grade, everybody's hand shoots right up, right? Second grade, about half the classroom. Third grade, about 10 kids would put their hand up. By the time you got to sixth grade, middle school, there would be maybe two kids who kind of sheepishly looking around with anybody else, and they would raise their hand like, I'm, a, I'm an artist. And he went on to say this, that from the cradle to the grave, the pressure is on, be normal. My guess is that there was a time, perhaps when you were very young, when you had at least a fleeting notion of your own genius, and were just waiting for some authority figure to come along and validate it for you, but no one ever came. You know, I think at the root of the fear of looking foolish is so often this fear that I'm not, I'm not good enough. And can I be honest with you? Can I keep it real? There were numerous times as I've been called to pastor this campus where I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I'm good enough. Numerous times where we're waiting on our son in India who just turned one this month, right? And I'm waiting for that day when I'm going to embrace him and I'm going to be his father. And then I think, man, am I good enough? What if I flunk this opportunity? Anybody ever asked that question? Man, I might screw this up. Am I good enough to take on this role, do this thing that God is calling me to? You can fail in a lot of positions in life. You can fail as an employee. You can fail as a boss. You can fail as a pastor. You can fail as a, a parent. You can fail as a spouse. But you overcome that fear of not being good enough. You don't overcome fears in life by going around them or over them or under them. You get over fears in life by going through them. So can I at least encourage, encourage you in that? If you don't feel good enough, you're fearful of something, if God's calling you to it, go right towards it. That's how you overcome that fear. The second thing is, again, you can fail a lot of ways in life. But another revelation I've had over the past year is I can fail in all these different roles that I play in life, but I can never fail my way out of the love of God. As his son. Raj can do a lot of stuff to screw up in life, but he'll always be my son. How much greater is the Heavenly Father's love for us? You know, it says in Isaiah, I was reading just a couple days ago. It's in Isaiah 49 where it says, They say my Lord has deserted us. He's forgotten us. Never. Can a mother forget her little child and not have love for her own son? Yet even if that should be, I will not forget you. See, I have tattooed your name upon my palm. This, re this reminder, it should inspire confidence. But you know, the, the moment we lose touch with the childlike boldness and courage to be ourselves that's rooted in, that trusts in, and that looks to our Heavenly Father, then we lose the quality, the childlike quality Jesus calls us to that grows our faith and matures our faith as we follow God. Again, those children in those classes, they waited affirm for affirmation for those childlike gifts and creativity and imagination from whoever, parents, uh, peers, teachers, otherwise. And when they didn't get it, they quote-unquote grew up they sought to fit in. They sacrificed being childlike at the altar of maturity. But again, healthy maturity knows when and how to be childlike. And again, that's not a call to immaturity. Jesus clearly calls us to grow into a mature faith and to practice responsibility. But he also hates it when we practice what I would call irresponsible responsibility. Or I would call it that only because Mark Batterson called it that in one of his books. This idea of irresponsible responsibility, which he defines as when we turn our responsibilities into excuses that keep us from chasing God. Irresponsible 
responsibility. I firmly believe that's an epidemic in our culture, and that's why I've never forgotten this concept. Because so many things, let's be serious, they call and beg and shout for our attention all throughout the day. Legitimate responsibilities, <laughs> real life things, but what's our greatest priority? You know, I came across this verse reading through my Bible last year where it's in John 12. It's talking about Jesus' ministry. It's talking about the effects of his ministry. And in verse 42 through 43, it says that a considerable number from the ranks of the leaders did believe. But because of the Pharisees, they didn't come out into the open with it. They were afraid of getting kicked out of the meeting place. When push came to shove, they cared more for human approval than God's glory. Now, I don't know what Mark Batterson would say about that, but that seems like textbook irresponsible responsibility. Paul asks in Galatians, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of God. You know, one of the biggest indicators of spiritual maturity and growing up in your faith is when you care less and less about what people think in relation to how much God thinks. Or you care less and less about what people think and more and more about what God thinks about you, first and foremost. You know what quality of a child we should never and hopefully ever lose? Awe and wonder of who God is. David says in Psalm 119, verse 16, he says, my awe of you is more than fear of what man might say or do. That my awe of you is greater than my fear of what man might say or do. In Matthew 6, in the message version, when Jesus is talking about those very Pharisees, he says they get applause true, but that's all they get. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. You know, the Pharisees' biggest flaw, the reason Jesus said, hey, as you as my disciples, your righteousness needs to exceed theirs, is because they turn their acts of worship into a performance. The means of worship became the end. And because of that, we see this end of the prophetic voice and God moving supernaturally in that way for hundreds of years before John the Baptist and Jesus stepped on the scene. They had become boxed in, small people believing in a small God. But Jesus came again through that proverbial fence and he flipped everything upside down. How much good, though, is left undone because of the fear we feel of looking foolish, of what somebody might think if we really step out in this way that, that God's telling us to step out. Again, we become small people with a small God, a fenced-in people with a boxed-in God. You think of Joshua and you think of Jericho. The town surrounded, it was surrounded by more than a fence, but this intimidating wall. And I think about the meeting he has with these grown men who are warriors, like we're talking characters from Braveheart, characters from Gladiator. He's in a, a meeting, probably in a tent with these men. And he's like, here's our plan for Jericho. For seven days, we're going to walk around it, play some instruments, and then finally, the climax of this plan, we're going to shout really loud. Those that maybe lacked a little faith probably called him foolish. This is foolish. What is, what is Joshua smoking? What is wrong with Joshua? This is the plan? But I was reading just this morning in Hebrews 11.30. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. It was by faith. What kind of faith? The kind of faith that doesn't care about looking foolish. The kind of faith that cares more about what God commands than what man will think. And if this is God's plan, then guess what? I'm going to walk in it. 
The Great Commission, I've said it before and I'll say it again and again, it wasn't a suggestion, it was a command, but how often do we sidestep the Great Commission because of fear of what people will think? Fear of looking foolish. Fear. How many walls remain up in our lives because we have the fear of looking foolish? How many fences is God still behind? Like, hey, let me out. I want to flip your world upside down, but we have a fear of what people would think. Again, God wants to come through that fence, and sometimes do the downright strange. Think again, Joshua of Jericho, so many examples in the Bible. But fear of looking foolish forfeits our fidelity time and time again and replaces it with faithlessness. So my question tonight is, what's your Jericho? What are you seeking? What area are you seeking God to move like Jairus wanted to see God move with his daughter? Where are you towing the line of giving up hope because it seems hopeless. Jesus would say to us again tonight, hey, don't fear, just believe. Don't give in to worry. Don't cripple yourself with stress. Have that childlike faith that looks at me like a, a kid looks at their dad and just thinks, man, he can do anything. You aren't forgotten. Like we read in Isaiah, he knows your name. It's tattooed on the palm of his hand. But you know what, if I could just, Rich, if you want to just come up and play the keys, we're going to close. We don't have a ton of time. But, you know, there's a, a place in Argentina, and it's called Tierra del Fuego. Carlos, you can correct me if I'm saying that wrong. Tierra del Fuego means the land of fire. And it was named by Magellan's explorers because on this peninsula, they saw fire after fire. But the natives that were tending these fires, they paid, they paid zero attention to the ships that were going by. And it's interesting because later they explained that because they were so different than anything they'd ever seen, because they were so strange, they considered them some kind of vision or ghostly apparition. They, they thought this isn't even real. So they paid the ships no mind and just went on about their business. Again, Albert Einstein says the most beautiful thing we can experience is the strange. It's the source of all true art and science. He who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead, his eyes are closed. Again, God wants to do the supernatural and extraordinary through ordinary people like you and me. But what do we miss that's floating right in front of us because of a lack of faith or the presence of fear? Fear of looking foolish, fear of what people will think. I don't know what the fear is for you. I don't know what the Jericho is for you but dare to see things through the, the lens of a childlike faith. Be carefree, responsibly irresponsible. You know, may our maturity as believers care more about what God is calling us to do than what people will think. Because when, when God calls you to something, it's often big. I even just think, again, Carlos is getting married soon. Orion, our bass player, getting married soon. When I got married, I was like, again, I don't know if I'm gonna be a good enough father. I don't know if I'm gonna be a good enough husband. But again, if God calls you to it, he's gonna equip you. You don't have to be crippled by fear. You walk right towards that fear and watch as God equips you and raises you up to be the man you're called to be, the husband you're called to be, the father you're called to be, the leader you're called to be. So when God calls you to something and he's gonna call you to something this week, <laughs> I pray that, I believe that for you, God is gonna, Make it clear to you, hey, I want you to have this conversation. I want you to share what I'm doing with this person. 
Maybe it's an act of kindness. Maybe it's a simple, come on, like a simple smile, shake of the hand, introducing yourself, caring for somebody this week. I dare you to do it and see if the blessing isn't greater than the embarrassment. When God calls you to something, the blessing is always bigger than whatever small moment of embarrassment you might have. The blessing is always greater. So might we, we'll have those moments. I'm not qualified for this. I'm about to enter into a, a conversation, uh, apologetics, defending my faith. I don't even know if I'm qualified for this. Man, the Holy Spirit is in you. What he calls you to, that great commission that we're commanded to walk out in, he's going to equip us. God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. But again, we're born with two fears, falling and loud noises. Everything else you've learned, God calls us to unlearn them. And often it's like David running right towards Goliath. We overcome those fears by running directly at them with faith in God. You know, ultimately in life, we're either going to walk in faith or stand in fear. God's going to call us to walk in faith so many moments in our lives. So I don't know. Let's just stand. I want to close in prayer. God, I don't know what fears are holding us back. And sometimes they're, they're in our blind spot. We don't even realize it's there again, like that undertow of the ocean that, that pulls us back out as we try to walk in, Lord God. But I pray that in this moment, your Holy Spirit would reveal, convict us, show us those, those areas that are holding us back. God, when you're calling us forward, God, you're calling us to have faith for our Jericho. Places we're ready to give up hope, Lord God. People we're ready to give up hope for. Circumstances where we're ready to give up hope. But you say, hey, don't fear, just believe. God, we have no shame in asking like the gentleman did to you in the Gospels. Help us in our unbelief. Give us faith, Lord God. God, remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness. God, we thank you that your grace covers us and it calls us. God, that you save us by grace through faith, not by works so no man can boast, but you do it so that we can do the works you prepared in advance for us to do. God, help those fears that are clinging to us not to hold us back. The fear of looking foolish, the fear of what people will think. God, help us to have a healthy awe and wonder of how big you are and how big you can be in us and through us. Give us a, a childlike faith, not a childish, immature faith, but a faith that has the perspective of a child with which we mature from. God, we want to run after your purpose and your calling in our lives. And you have a purpose and a calling for every life here to build your kingdom, to be a part of your church, to see fruit come not only in their own lives, but the lives of people around them, God. Give us that perspective. Remind us of that tonight. In Jesus' name, Jesus' name, amen. We've gone over a little bit, but if you're here tonight, man, I'm going tomorrow again to my parents' house because all my nephews are there. They're like age one all the way up to like age seven now. Six of them. Chaos, right? But I can remember the oldest nephew. I'm still learning how to like properly roughhouse with kids. I would grab him by the ankles and I would flip him. He's flipping flip the air and land on the couch, right? And the first time I do that, he's terrified, borderline crying. But then after about 10 seconds, he's like, do it again. Do it again. Do it again, right? Anybody who's been time with kids, you know, the first time they're fearful, the second time they'll do it again. Come on, man, we press through that moment of fear to the, that contagious, man, God, call me to it again. I want to I do it again. I want to share my faith again. I want to 
see somebody come to you again. And I don't know, maybe you've never come to God. And there's often this fear of, again, I'm not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. That's why his grace is so good. While we were still sinners, he died for us. So if you've never given your life to this wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, you never say, I want you to be Lord over my life. I want you to be king over my life. Then tonight, I'm going to be right here. We're going to break now. Pray the Lord will bless and keep every one of you. And I'll see most of you next week. But if you need to pray, I'll be right here. Amy's right here. We'll pray for you gladly. But again, may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.